Hello and welcome to the Max Muth Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. I am so excited to bring you today's episode, an interview with Andrew Schneider, the artist behind a show I like to call You Are Nowhere, You Are Now Here. His show runs at Three-Legged Dog from March 9th to April 3rd. The Maximum Gang is going on Friday, March 18th. If you are in New York, I hope you'll join us then and for drinks afterwards. You can find ticket information on this episode's page at maximu.com. Enjoy the show. I don't usually start my interviews this way, but I am curious to know if um, you've ever heard us talk about you on the Maximum <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, someone might have tipped me off that... That you, that some people at Maximum may have seen the show in the past, uh-huh. and may have said some kind things about it, or just or you know what I'm more than like uh, hearing like reviews or anything about the show. I'm really, you know, I there's an internal logic to the show that we made that that uh, um, that we then that we that at some point during the show we implemented and then that became really boring and so we took that away um but the internal logic still remains it's just it's not shown so i'm always interested to so but i never get to talk to anybody about it right so i'm so interested in what people have to say about the show and uh and their experiences because i you know we did the show nine times in january in new york and uh so more than more than like hearing reviews i just like hearing people talk about it because because that's the ultimate goal of the show is to communicate right. with people and share, like, share, just share ideas with people, I guess. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think that you have uh, very kindly described our reaction to your show as uh, <laughs> in less hysterical terms than we may have uh, responded to it initially. So um, thank you for that. One question. Um, how do you talk about the show? How do you, um, I mean, very specifically, what do you call it? Oh, I try not to say it out loud. You try not to say it out loud? Yeah. Okay. I, and I just describe it. I describe what the title is. Okay. And then I let other people Okay, because say, when I refer to it, it I call it, You Are Nowhere, You Are Now Here. Which, I, I think I picked that up from you, actually, when I when I have to talk about it. Uh-huh. I th- oh, and and someone, someone else who's doing an interview... I, I can't remember who you might be the origin of that. Okay. <laughs> so, so thank you because it's a good, it's a good workaround. But there are people who, who months after seeing the show, someone else that we're all talking about it, and someone says it a specific way, and someone and I remember a director friend of mine just sort of stopped and looked at me and said, "No, it's both." Oh <laughs> really? Like, How did you not know that? Oh, yeah. that's so funny. <laughs> On the episode a year over a year ago now where Nicole and Jack and I talked about it. Um, I told the story about when I realized oh, that right. it was said both ways after the show, Nicole and I were on the subway <laughs> and we were just, you know, there was hyperbole flowing and hand right. gestures. And somebody said, can I ask, excuse me, interrupting our conversation, what show are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And I looked down at the program wondering, like, I have no idea what this show is called. <laughs> and I said it, and then I said it another way, and I my brain just exploded. My brain matter is really still good. on the ceiling of that subway car. <laughs> oh, that's really good. That makes me very happy, actually. <laughs> it's it's weird because, um, you know, like when we toured it, the, the technical team, like people got sick of writing it out, uh-huh. so they abbreviate it, or uh-huh. they... Um, they whatever they use uh, an acronym Mm -hmm. and it's it's very telling because some people write one way one way and some people write the other way oh wow yeah i'm like oh you're an optimist huh (laughs) (laughs) glass half full glass half empty nice nice so where are you from i i'm from milwaukee wisconsin oh you are Mm -hmm. i didn't know you're from the midwest oh yeah yeah oh interesting yeah and what was your childhood like there um you know, it was like casserole. Mm-hmm. Like the whole, I feel like the whole Midwest can be summed up as casserole. Mm-hmm. Um, just everything about it. You know, obviously what is eaten, but then design choices and uh, lifestyles. Yes, <laughs> that's a terrible thing to say. But casserole is ca- delicious. It doesn't <laughs> have to be Casserole is terrible. delicious. No, it's true. It's true. It's just so filling. Yes, and <laughs> eating it for every meal is just a little too much. Especially the way they make it in Wisconsin with cheese and it's sausage. Just, yeah. and 
Yeah, and there's um, French's uh, like little fried onion things yes. on the top all the time. Yes. Um, um, I hope my mom never listens to this. It's delicious, mom. It's delicious. <laughs> I love it. Um, no, I can't. You know, I went to. Uh, I was just weird as a kid. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised to hear that. <laughs> but I found my parents' video camera very early on. And so I, uh, me and my friends would just like make little movies with my parents' video camera. And then, um, I don't know, it was very, bo- it was like very boring. It, you know, there's not a lot to do. What did your parents do while you were growing up? Uh, they were both uh, public school administrators. Okay. So my father like negotiated like bus contracts and like the Pepsi machine contract for public schools, and then my mother was a school secretary. So you went to public school? No, I didn't go to public school because they worked for the public school. They were like, "This oh. system's broken. Let's ha- not have you go to public school." What school did you go to? <laughs> I went to um, 13 years of Catholic school. Oh wow! I went to Saint Matthias. Go Bulldogs! <laughs> and then I went to. Um, uh, Pius the Eleventh High School, go Popes! It was, um, and then I got out of there. You know, was your family <laughs> Catholic? Oh, uh, you know, they. Um, my parents were very nice. They were like, "Here's here's what church is. Uh, let's go for a while. You like it? No? Okay, cool. You don't have to go. You know, they were just very open. They, you know, um, but the but Catholic guilt is a real thing, mm-hmm. and uh, I feel you know that's I think that's where the majority of my Work comes from is guilt. Really? Yeah. Or just the ability to work on work is, um, I do, I do. There's a lot of, I mean, it was, a, it, it was actually a thing for a while. That you felt guilty? hmm About what? Uh, not being good, <laughs> not being a good person. And then, uh, not just, and then in general, just guilt as a habit of like, um, not working on things enough, not being good enough. You know, I mean, it's a New York thing, too. It's just a rat race. Um, but it was a good, it was a special combination, being from Milwaukee, moving to New York, and just always, uh, um, sometimes motivation, which is welcome from anywhere, but coming from a specific place of guilt um, was a thing. Are you free of that now, or Oh, no, no, no. No, I, it's, it's, it's always going to be there, I realize. And it's fine, you know? Uh, um, and sometimes, you know, when I wake up in the morning, most of the time I don't, I don't feel like I have to work because I, I feel guilty, but um, <laughs> I feel like I have to work because I have ideas in my head that I have to get out, you know, and I have to share them with people. That sounds like a healthier approach to yeah, your work, yeah, although yeah. is it as effective? <laughs> it is now. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I'm just slowly gaining uh, confidence in myself and like a self-awareness of like, because when I was, you know, I spent three years making that show in my apartment just by myself. And having no collaborators at all until three weeks out, I, th- I was like, oh, well, I, I saw other people need to be in it. And like I need a stage manager. And so it took a long time, like picking the very specific people who are on that team. Um, because I'm just I don't I, I didn't uh, have any sort of awareness or self-confidence in, in that anything that I was doing was in any way good or something that people would want to share. You know, I just didn't know. Because the show doesn't work without an audience. Right. Like, the show is an, it's, I mean, rehearsing that thing f- for no one is really depressing. I actually. bet. Yeah. Because, you, you know, the show takes place in the theater space in front of you. And without those other people to talk to, it's just really, it's really depressing. Yeah. <laughs> so your kid growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, going to Catholic school mm-hmm. and you discover your parents' video camera. Mm-hmm. Um, what other exposure to arts and culture did you have, or the theater specifically? Oh boy, the th- I mean, every you know, I I, I always want to have the answer of like what, like when did you know, when did you know, Andrew, <laughs> that theater was gonna? And I want to I want to be like, well, I was thirteen, <laughs> and I saw this musical and it changed my life. I was blown away because most people have that answer. Well, some do, some don't. A lot. I mean, I just get really jealous when. People do have that answer, and I don't. Um, it was like a slow, it was a slow inevitability, and and even now, I think I I think I got into into theater through through theater at first, and then I went away from theater, and then came back to theater through visual arts, uh-huh. if that can be a thing, because um, I was really I wanted to be a 
you know, as a kid, I didn't really have, I don't remember like a ton of exposure. I mean, I, I did plays in high school and stuff like that. And that was, you know, why anybody does plays in high school. I don't know. The performing arts in high school is a weird, like, I don't, I don't really know what my motivation was. Um, I don't think it is what it is now. You know, I think then it was, um, <laughs> you know, I want to be an actor. Yeah. And now I don't. It's 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 coming from a different place. I don't. I love performing, but it's 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 uh, it's not because I get to inhabit roles of people who I otherwise wouldn't be. It's because I, I, I specifically, you know, I don't think I don't think I'm making vanity projects. I think that I'm making um, time based art that happens to have to take place in the theater. That happens to be something that I wrote for myself. That maybe I I I know how to inhabit it the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't really put it on other people unless I built it on other people. And this last show I didn't, um, the new work I might be, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was doing musical theater, uh, <clears throat> acting, singing, dancing in college and, but, and then I got out of college and moved to New York and I was just getting gigs outside of New York, like regional theaters. And by the, the third time I was playing the dentist in little shop of horrors, I thought this is I love telling stories, but maybe I have different stories that I could be telling other than like about a man eating plant because I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually really not very good at metaphor. So show so there's no hope of a revival of one of those productions, <laughs> Andrew. I know. I would love to, I would love to. I mean, if you know, yeah, if anybody wants to do little shop, I'll, I'm all for it. Um, I, I think we could find an audience. <laughs> Um, it's funny because I am working on a show with, um, with Rachel Chafkin and Heather Christian, which is just a kind of a musical. It's a Mac, it's a Mac Wellman novel. That's what we're adapting into a musical. Um, and it's going to be really weird Sounds it, great. because it's Mac Wellman, but, um, it really is just like the musical, mm-hmm. um, which I'm very excited about. Um, so where did you go to college? I went to Illinois Wesleyan university, Okay. which was great. It was, I, I auditioned for like 13, uh, you know, conservatory programs and, and, uh, liberal arts schools. And then on the other side, I was doing photography in high school and I, I like applied for like third to like 13, uh, photography schools. I got into every art school that I applied to. I got in and I got into one <laughs> theater school, um, and like waitlisted for everything else. And, uh, I thought I, it's better to do amateur photography and professional theater than, uh, amateur theater and professional photography because of the hierarchical structure of like what you can take care of yourself. Like I can go to the dark room after hours, like after rehearsal, but I'd rather like have a, have learned the, like learn the actual, you know, it's a liberal arts school. So it's not like, I'm not like in a conservatory program, but, um, at least I'm not just like doing community theater. Um, I I can feel like I have things to learn. So I, so I did that. I went to the theater school and then I, and I was doing little shop of horrors and I was like, uh, Maybe these aren't stories I want to tell. And I had interned for the Worcester Group and for the Builders Association. And someone there told me about the interactive telecommunications program at NYU. And I put it off for a while. And then finally I applied. Because I was really, it was at the time when, you know, like, my girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend was, like, texting me at the time. And I was like, text? What the <laughs> hell is a text? This is crazy. Are you texting me that you love me? This is insane. <laughs> this is not a good way to communicate. And so I thought, I really thought that texting and mobile phones were the downfall of the human civilization. Is that we were communicating more, but we were saying a lot less. And that, um, I, you know, we were just going to become worse and worse communicators. And we weren't going to realize it. So, and that program specifically... Um, has inbuilt uh, theory classes into it. So it's like they teach you how to program microchips and stuff, but it's all about the application of that. Um, It's like it's an engineering school for artists, an art school for engineers, and they really focus on the application of the technology, not the technology itself. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was a perfect place to explore these ideas about how technology might be bad for us if used incorrectly or not... um, or not monitored. Mm-hmm. And so I went there and, and tried to explore uh, uh, how technology was changing our day-to-day lives and our dependence on technology was changing our lives. Um, I, was think, I thought it was really important to have that conversation. Uh, and I tried to explore it through performance and making performance devices and stuff. And is that where the inspiration for the show came from? Or were those things simultaneous or it's where it's, it's where it started. It's weird because I, I always... When I started making work after that, 
you know, I was just doing it for like little festivals for like Prelude Festival or Avant Garde Rama. I was just making little seven minute things and trying to expand them. And the um, the show that I did in Coil last year um, started as a lighting idea. I just built that little frame, that mm -hmm. light frame. And I, I sort of, you know, I knew that LEDs could be turned on and off instantaneously. And I thought, I had, I, I, I'm sort of fascinated by, I've, I, I, in, in theater, because, because you're sitting there in a seat facing a certain way, um, over a certain amount of time, that's the perfect environment for me to feel like I can come in and manipulate time and space, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like a gallery, say, where you're curating your own experience. So with these LEDs, I always, I wanted to really like sort of shake up an audience and uh, have them have an experience that's not intellectual, that's visceral through design elements. So I started thinking about this thing of um, curating emotion without narrative. Um, because I think that's like what music does or that's, or if you go to a rock concert, like I will go to a rock concert and just like, look at the lights and be like, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like moved by design elements. So I, I was just fascinated by putting like two architectural spaces in the same space or, or, um, putting two things next to each other and flickering between them at, you know, 30 Hertz or something as a way to like relate, put two things next to each other that aren't related and have a third thing emerge. Um, uh, you know, I, I I don't know, thinking, but but that to say that's to say that the show sort of started out of a or out of that design element, and I was like, oh, I have this little architectural lighting frame, and then I'll, I'll have that on, and then I'll have the whole space activated, and then I'll have that on, um, switch back and forth between them as fast as I can, and I thought, well, I have, I, someone has to be there to say words probably, so I should probably write some words, and I should I should probably be the guy saying them. And, and what inspired the content of the words? Because it's quite specific, right? There's a quantum mechanics element yeah. and uh, reality and considering time and place and what does the present mean? What is the past? Yeah. I mean, it grew very, very slowly and started with just, it basically started with no, no content mm -hmm. with um, just here's a guy here's a guy who here's an untrustworthy narrator. Mm -hmm. Like things are broken. Everything that you're receiving is broken. Like grammatical structures are broken. Um, things are backwards really as a way, like the first words I wrote are probably exists, probably exist in the, in like the first 10 minutes of the show, just spread out now mm -hmm. somewhere. Um, and it really like, that was the, that was the seed that I put in the Petri dish and like the back. That's a weird metaphor, isn't it? Um, and then the bacterial <laughs> culture grew out of that <laughs> in all these different ways. Um, and that, uh, so I didn't, I mean, I didn't really have, there was no idea to make the show. Oh, well, that's so interesting. I, that is not what I would have guessed. Yeah, no, I, not at all. I completely would have guessed that it started with the, the theoretical concept right. and then you built the technical elements on top of it, but actually it was the reverse. Yeah. That came a lot later where, and I just happened to be, you know, I just have, I've, I've always been fascinated with time travel. Mm -hmm. Um, like that was a lot of like time travel and cosmology. Um, have always fascinated me since I was a kid. Um, but then specifically reading, um, you know, these textbooks about, quantum mechanics and you know like pop it's like pop science mm -hmm. but um these ideas at the time were just blowing my mind and uh that's what that's what tends to happen is i'm i just like in life not for the show i'm just like reading these textbooks like just in life and i'm like well maybe that goes in the show and then and so there's no real separation anymore from like my day-to-day -day life and like what goes into a show it's because i don't have stories i want to tell um, I have experiences that I want to share with people uh -huh. and trying to, and I, I just try to build those experiences on a stage because your attention is focused and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's, it's true. It's, there was no idea for the show. The show, the show came out of the, out of the technical element and, um, just what, what I happened to be fascinated with at that time when I was making a show. So back when you were in college and you were a theater major, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, so then you graduate, you come to New York City mm -hmm. yeah. with the idea that you're going to participate in theater here professionally. Yes. And what did you do to get started? You know, um, got my headshots, got my resume, <laughs> went to the, uh, every cattle call that could ever happen. 
Um, in Midtown, I was living in Queen. I was living in Queens, which is where all the musical theater people live, at least from my school. And you were a musical theater person. That's how mm-hmm. you considered yourself at the time. Yes, I was um, specifically auditioning for mostly musical theater. Okay. Stuff. Um, <laughs> and which is weird. Uh, it is weird. <laughs> I just can't imagine it. No, Having but only, I mean, I've only ever seen you do one show. I've seen you do it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But your persona is just so not musical theater kid, right? But uh, so if you, so the show is happening again. And if you come to see it again, just think in the, just put, just keep that in the back of your mind. Like oh, well, music, I will be there. Musical theater guy. <laughs> and just watch, <laughs> watch the show with that little filter on. And I think you'll, I think I, you'll notice some stuff. I suspect I'll see it more than <laughs> once. And at least one time I'm going to devote the entire experience to that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, halfway through the show, there is sort of like, you know. Oh, I know. Trust me, I know. Um, Okay, so anyway, back, you're living in Queens, you're trying out for musical theater, and, mm-hmm. and what happens to you? Um, you know, I just keep getting cast in, in like, educational theater tours, and, like, some musicals, but just that aren't in the city, you know? And are you making your own theater at the same time, at or are you focused on other people's productions? I was focused on other people's productions, but I did do, there was, a, um... I heard about I, I the first show I ever saw in New York was uh, Joe by Richard Maxwell at PS one twenty two. I was like, oh PS one twenty two, got it. I'm always I'm gonna see every show that they do. So you were interested in that sort of experimental types of performance from then? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. In college, I had one professor who sort of said, you know, there's this uh, like I know you guys are studying musical theater, but here's this other thing. Like here's the Wooster Group, here's Richard Maxwell, here's the Builders Association, here's like you know Schechner, here's you know just open intern- up that world. The internships you did with those organizations were in college. Yeah, I came out for a semester okay. and uh, interned for uh, for Wooster and for Builders and uh, and people like that. Just just you know because they were just such big mythical sure. Things I was like, ooh, big, you know, art with a capital A, and then getting into that room and saying, oh wow, this is how you guys work. This is okay. It's more accessible than I thought. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you know, modern art doesn't have to be uncrackable. I realized, and uh, so that was a big, that was a big realization. And then in making my own, and then just you know, in 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 the ability to trust my own process, and that any process, if you stick to it, uh, can be a legitimate process. and, and growing it from there. But I remember applying for very early on, right when I moved to New York, um, applying for uh, an avant-garde-rama curated by Sally May. And I'm pretty sure I didn't get in because, you know, maybe two weeks out, I got a call saying like, hey, do you want to do the avant-garde-rama? And I was like, oh, someone dropped out. And they're just <laughs> like, like, I'm the backup guy. <laughs> and so I didn't really have a show. I mean, I remember applying with a phonetically back, I don't, yeah. It was it was the first time I did the the backwards show. There's a there's a short piece that I've done a bunch. That's the first five minutes I've memorized the text phonetically backwards. That gets recorded live, and then that recording gets played backwards so that you realize what I was saying forwards. And and meanwhile, I'm there's a closed circuit camera that picks up on me when I I run outside of the building and get milk and cookies for for the audience. But that sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's that was the first that was the first thing I ever did in New York City, I think. And how did it proceed from there? You at some point you work for the Wooster Group. Yeah. um, Well, I think I did things backwards because. I right. I was doing musical theater for like two years and then I was sick of it. And then I went to grad school. I graduated from grad school in 2007. I was interviewing at places like Yahoo and Google and on the West Coast and saying to myself, <clears throat> wow, people will pay me a lot of money to like do exactly what I've been doing for the past two years in grad school. This is incredible. Um, so I was all set to like kind of go out there and then the Wooster Group called and said, our video guy's leaving. Do you want to come be our video guy? And I was like, well, I can't pass that up. So I did that. Was it challenging to have such a heavy science load when you were in grad school, or did you have that background as well? I didn't have that background. Um, 
I was always fascinated by it and interested in it, but I didn't, I was never good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, my big thing was, um, learning how to, I, I just wanted to learn how to hack things, hack hardware basically. And I didn't have that skill set. I didn't have a, a coding background. Like w- first time someone explained what, um, binary was to me, it really blew my mind and like machine language and, um, how to program a microchip, uh, to make an led blink. I was like, if you can do this, you can do anything. <laughs> you can do anything in the world. This is incredible. You know, it's just, and it's all about like input processing and output. And it's so weird because now when I think about work or I, or I, or I like do talks or, or master classes or sub in for teaching theater, teaching performance, I still talk about these things like input processing output, um, you know, rapid prototyping, release early, release often, all these things that I learned about hardware and software development in a technical, like sort of engineering based um, art grad school. I still, I bring that all into my performance stuff mm-hmm. um, through, through the, through the processes that I use to make work, which which is usually not writing anything down. It's usually recording something into a microphone, listening to it, um, cutting and pasting in Ableton Live rather than Microsoft Word, just to just to get things on its feet as as, as soon as possible. It's weird. It's it's a weird way of making theater, but it really works for me because I'm because it's usually just me in a room. And when you came to New York after college, what did you think your career would look like before you got here? I I, I remember. Having a, you know, a five-year thing, like a goal, like that was written on a coaster from a bar or something. Like five years. Um, have your, you know, have your work being produced in New York City. So you had the idea that you would create your own work from the beginning. Yeah, that's, uh, yes, that is, that is, I, I, I knew that I wanted to audition for things and be in other people's work. I wanted to be an actor, but I also knew that I wanted uh, from the beginning. I did know that I wanted to make my own, my own work. Um, yeah. In, in that, that, that semester that I spent in New York while I was still in college was, was huge. I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have done very well if I had gone to school in New York, but going to school in a small town and then visiting New York once for a semester, having that limited thing really, Flip really blew my mind wide open, and uh, I, I think that that was the best thing for me. And has your career gone as <clears throat> you expected with what you thought you would be doing when you first arrived? Yeah, I'm just seven years, I'm seven years behind schedule. <laughs> That's the only thing. I, <laughs> I was supposed to have a, uh, like a, you know, I was supposed to be touring to France and Australia seven years ago. So I feel amazing because it's like, it's, it is literally, it's, it really is my, like I had a dream to do this when I came to, when I moved to New York, I was like, I want to make my own show. I want it to be at PS122. Wow. And I wanted to tour the world. And like those things actually happened. I mean, you know, PS122 doesn't exist as a building, but not currently, but, <laughs> but I was in their festival yes. and then my, and then the show toured. So it's kind of exact. It, it's it's really is exactly what I wanted to do. Wow. It's just it's just way behind schedule. That's the only thing. <laughs> I mean, I think you're still within the like realm of having achieved it on a pretty quick timeline. <laughs> Maybe, but Maybe never, I, nevertheless. Yeah. Um, no, I I did. I got caught up with working for the Wish Group for seven years. So that was that was a long. And what was yeah. your experience there like? It was amazing. I mean, you're in that room and you're learning things and you don't realize that you're learning them. Uh, it's a great, it's a great room to be in, you know, with those people. I mean, it's a terrible room to be in sometimes. Um, How so? Oh, just like interpersonal relationships and, uh, you know, abuse, uh, emotional abuse. <laughs> if anyone from the Worcester is listening to this, they'll understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> and they're laughing right now. <laughs> Thank you, Liz. You taught me everything. Um, uh, no, y- you know, just, I mean... Liz's life is her work. And so she, you know, that's her, it's how she survives. So the stakes are, are pretty high. It's not just like, it's not a bunch of people just like, uh, messing around, like making art. It's like, that's for, for a lot of people, it's their livelihoods and, and, uh, uh, 
you know, I don't know. When did you leave the Wooster Group? Uh, you know, it takes about two years to quit if you're a technical person because you have because you know I. I don't know. I was I I I made something like three shows with them, and I uh, retroactively toured a bunch of other shows. So, as the video guy, sort of, you know, it, no one has one job there. Mm-hmm. Everyone's uh, the, it's everything. Every show is is put together through this weird spider web thing. You know, it's not like a stage manager is calling cues. Everyone's just everyone's uh, executing what they have made over the last two years through every show and the shows all are always changing nothing is ever static so everything's changing all the time so it takes a long time to quit and i quit uh i started quitting um <laughs> i think i think in 2014 and uh i'm still in one show uh early shaker spirituals um but uh, i've managed to wiggle out of every other show and why did you quit? Um, I mean, the impetus was um, a lot of things. You know, most technical people, I think on average, I, I, I looked up one day and I, I realized that I was like this, like the person who had been there longest from the technical team. And that I was like, wait, what? No. So that was weird. Um, and I, I think the main reason I quit was because I finally got what I wanted, and uh, which was to perform in a Worcester Group show. Um, and it ended up being in, in like, in not the way that I wanted it to happen. Um, but, but it was there and I had it and, uh, I, I, I found myself at a place of like, I, I picked up what I needed to pick up and I learned what I needed to learn. And now it's time for me to take my own work seriously mm-hmm. and, uh, actually do the thing. It was, a, it, you know, I had been commissioned to do, to make a, a show for Coil. So it was the perfect time to sort of went like right when I was done being full time was right when um, I, I went right from being full time at Wooster to full time making uh, the Coil show. And how does a Coil commission work? Uh, who knows? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I I there there's a um a program at PS122 called Ramp the Ramp series mm-hmm. and that was sort of like an emerging artists thing where they give you a couple thousand bucks and um you make a show and they promote it and, and you do like four shows or something. And I had a I was like I had done something like seven avant-garde dramas before this and so I knew everyone there and everyone knew me and um we had a great relationship but I still had not yet made like a full length work or anything um and uh i i was i sort of said i'm gonna do this ramp series and when i like when i get it i'm that'll be the next step and then i'll do a full length thing the next year and if i don't get it then i'm done because i'm i i should be there that's where i should be in my career is like there and so i went for a meeting with ps122 and they were like we're not we can't do you we can't do the ramp thing with you. I was oh. like, okay, well, I'm done. Oh, no. <laughs> and then they said, but we just want to go the whole way and we'll just do the coil commission. And I was like, oh, that's a that's fun. That's better than <laughs> what I thought that meeting was going to be. So, um, you know, uh, uh, they just, you know, they work with you to um, make the show as good as it can be. Uh, and, like everyone over there is like the the... The, they're the best people on the planet. Um, I feel like PS122 has really been a home for me for a, a number of years, which has been great. And so in your show, you straddled the technical side of it. You developed all the, you developed new technology to be able to implement your show. Is that correct? I don't know if it's new technology. I think it's technology that exists. Applied but in a new way. Applied in a new way. Maybe not used very often in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, my whole thing was... Uh, if I'm curating, if I'm curating emotion without narrative, and I'm trying to get emotional reactions through these design elements, or just, you know, the show the show works on you through specific design elements. Sometimes, um, you know, the the text is a text, but the the lights are also the text. The sound is also the text, and they need to be hyper precise. And um, every, you know, 
the name of the game in developing new work in New York City is like you show things at Little Theater or you show things at Avant-Garde-Rama or at Catch Series and you have an hour to tech and you use their clip lights. And I was like, well, I'm, I can't do that because the show is so, so, half of the show just works on you in a technical way. So I developed, I built all my own stuff so that I could just have it in a suitcase, roll in, have my buddies know how to plug it in, plug it in, press space bar, it just goes. Like, no, there's, there is no, I don't need that hour of tech time to tech through, you know, my cues with your rep plot. I'd need that hour of tech time to hang these things out of the way and then at the right time just like, you know, uh, you know, release them and, and pull them in. So I, I spent a long time making sure that, uh, making it like <laughs> tourable for New York City, basically, in a way that I can just come in, turn it on, you know, and it just works. And so did you show it around other places before <clears throat> you got to Coil? Oh, yeah. Like it was, it's been in development. The first half was in development for like three years. Oh, wow. You know, like just in between tour dates from Wooster. Um, you know, I did, yeah, we did it. At, I did it at the Prelude Festival. I did it at Catch. I did it at, um, uh, I don't know, Abrams. I did it at the, at the Performing Garage. Like, yeah, it's, we did it a lot. And you talked in the beginning about how important the role of the audience is for the show. Before you performed it the first time, what were your concerns about it? Uh, the first time at Coil? Um, I didn't, I, I thought, I never thought about the audience until we got to Coil. Okay. Because the first half, so there's, you could, as, as with anything, you can break something into halves. Um, <laughs> so this show has two halves. Um, and I, I, I made the second half a lot later mm-hmm. and a lot quicker. Um, I, I wrote the second half sort of over a week um, uh, at my friend's place upstate. And, uh, and that was the only, after I wrote the second half, I thought, oh, now I need to be thinking about the audience and what they're thinking. Okay. Um, but before that, I never really, I never really thought about it. Um, also, the show, the show moves very quickly. Yes. And uh, it wasn't really until France that we, that where we had to supertitle it, where we, where I was started to think about. Oh right. People were saying things like, "You can't show all of the supertitles. You can't translate everything because um, it moves too fast, and people will people will tire of reading it." And um, and we slowly realized that like. It moves too fast in English. Like you, you're not meant to get everything. No. Like the 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 text becomes texture, rather than uh, s- something that you're meant to follow. You know, everyone. Right. I feel like everyone in that room knows that things are going wrong, or you're not sure whether things are going wrong or not. And then there's a certain point where everyone sort of says like, "Okay, I don't know what's happening, but neither does he, and that's all okay." Like we're no one is supposed to know what's actually going on. Yeah. You know, and that's a so like it's. You know, you're saying the audience is thinking that. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, my uh, a goal I had early on was to be sort of five steps ahead of everyone mm-hmm. in the room, um, so that you're getting, you're laughing at a joke that you know that you just now got, uh, you know, th- you know, five minutes later. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to sort of pack in, to to have to have sort of um, time work on you in a different way, where you're not putting things together. Uh, in sequence because because you're following things at one second per second but because <clears throat> something now 15 minutes um, bef- you know you're, you're noticing something now that 15 minutes before you didn't notice and you, you, you you're accumulating all these things and they're and they're they're summing up to something but not because you're following them in a linear way mm-hmm. um, yeah you perform this show with no shirt on it's true. Why? Yeah. Why? Why that? <clears throat> um. Can't. Well, so let me ask you this: Can you imagine if if you were the costume designer for the show? Okay. <laughs> put yourself in that role. I want you to give me like three options for what for what for what this show could like. What for what what type of um like what would like what we would be wearing? What I would be wearing. I think just a white t-shirt. A white t-shirt? Oh, that wouldn't work. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I, 
It's it's funny that you asked that. Um, I just don't know what we would what I would wear like a black t shirt. I don't know. <laughs> it it says too much. It really does. It says too much. I'm not to be clear. No complaints. <laughs> not I am not. I am the design choice at all. I'm just curious. I'm the. I mean, I I don't have a very great um a self body image and like you know I'm a, a hairy guy and I don't really enjoy going out there every night um with like you know and we <laughs> we we got to um I think it was Slovenia and there was a giant sort of 10 foot poster with um sort of one of the iconic images of the show so Maria Baranova shot the show um, and she had never seen it before. I'd never met her before. She showed up five minutes before we were doing a, a dress rehearsal. And I sort of said, hi. Um, some, sometimes the show is very dark. Sometimes the show is very flashy. I would encourage you to run around and shoot it from every angle. If, if you get caught in the dark, just stay there because otherwise we're going to run into you. Mm-hmm. And the images that she got from that show, never seeing it before, are just so stunning and so there's this one of um me with my head through the light frame and but you can see all the tiny individual hairs like just all over my body and then we got to slovenia and they were like oh we've been waiting for you and your hairy back i was like that's no way to greet an artist and there's this huge poster and i had never noticed before that you can see the individual hairs like on my back it's so so that's all to say i would love to be wearing a shirt i just don't know what shirt i would be wearing I don't think you should wear a shirt. <laughs> I just don't. I don't. It's. It, Do you have a special workout routine for pre-show time, the weeks leading up to a show and mid-show? <clears throat> I don't. I don't have a workout routine. I got really into rock climbing when we were touring with Wooster, and uh, we were in Thailand. No, we were in Hong Kong, and our and our hotel had a rock climbing wall, and. Uh, and then a, f- a friend from grad school, we both, I, I got into rock climbing and I casually mentioned to him that I was, and he's like, I've been rock climbing since I was in high school. So we, um, rock climbing, it's basically. Really? That's it? Yeah. I mean, I would, yeah, rock climbing. Wow. <laughs> um, I assumed you had a like really rigorous workout routine. No, I don't. I, I, no, I'm really not that healthy. I probably... You know, I, I'm starting to think about it now. This sh- we're two weeks out from the show, and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta like get more sleep. I gotta. Um, the show is from from where it's been in Coil. I so in Co- so the show happened in Coil, and then it, we went to Slovenia, and then we went to Melbourne, and then we went to Strasbourg. That was sort of the order of operations with uh, Mass Live Arts thrown in there too. And I feel like I've, ne- I feel like, I never. An audience might not notice, but I feel like I never had the chance to perform the show until we got to Strasbourg because I made it and I'm a bad programmer. And literally what happens is someone comes in, my friend comes in, hits the space bar on a computer and all the lights, all the sound, all the video is, are, are all controlled through these, through computers mm-hmm. on a timeline. Um, and that's the way it used to work. So if anything broke, no one knew how to fix it. I, w- I would have to make the call to stop the show. I would have to like crawl through the audience and like, you know, plug like unplug wires and stuff. And uh, it's terrifying. So the whole show, all I'm thinking about is what's going to break, what's going to break, what's going to break, what's going to break, what's going to tear out of the ceiling, what can possibly go wrong. All these things could go wrong. Some 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 things that could go wrong would be good. Some things would be absolutely terrible that we could not recover from. Right. So. I slowly amassed this team of people who are just the best people ever. Um, and like technically, you know, I have a stage manager who I didn't choose to work with her because she was the best stage. I mean, she is, I don't know if she has any stage managerial experience, but you know, she just got her a master's in philosophy. So she needs to be in the room because we have the similar ideas and you know, no one really needs to stage manage the show anyway. So, um, I, I surround myself with these people who have these amazing skill sets, but who are also, uh, we sort of have this hive mind that happens when we're all in a room. And finally I, I was, we was getting into the white makeup that I wear for the show. 
<clears throat> and I realized that if something breaks, I don't have to worry about it. That mm-hmm. all now I have these people who are do, who are doing it. And I feel like that was the first time that I ever actually performed the show where I wasn't just like where I wasn't in and out of autopilot, where I was really just there the entire time talking to people. And then and then the show became <clears throat> the show was always sort of mentally exhausting. And then the show became really physically exhausting um, because it wasn't just adrenaline. And I was and I was really I really started to push in different ways. And so now the show is sort of. I, I don't know. I'll be interested to, to see if you think that it's different um, because it takes it's I'm I'm more covered in sweat than I used to be now. And it's not like it's not like I'm like flailing around more, but there's something else happening now where I'm I'm investing something else that I wasn't investing before. And so now the show is very it's like more exhausting than it used to be. I think I might have seen it the first night of Coil. Yeah. And stuff broke. Not yeah, not yeah. mid show, but early in the show. Uh-huh. And I remember being like, I don't is the show started? Is this part of the show? <laughs> I don't know. I had no idea what I was in for. Um I think I think I think the show has broken probably fifty percent of the time. Oh, Over really? the course of how many times it's ever been performed, forty to fifty percent of the time something has gone wrong. And people might know about it, people might not. I mean, we were in Australia and uh, three uh, during one show, I broke three separate microphones where we had to stop the show three separate times and put me in a new microphone. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I start, yeah, my sound guy. Bobby, thank you for everything that you do. Um, he really, we had to, we, I was breaking microphones because I was just sweating through them. Wow. Uh, yeah, there's just lots of sweat ap- that happens. So I think my perspective perception is that you performed this show at Coil and people were just blown away instantly. It was like so quick and immediate that people thought the show was amazing. Um, is that accurate? And what was it like to experience that? Right. So, yeah, that was the first time, you know, the first the, our opening night was the first time we ever had an audience, like mm-hmm. we ever had an audience for the whole show. Um, cause you can describe the show as much as you want, or you can describe aspects of the show that, um, you can't logistically have happen unless it's during an actual run of the show. And people will say, Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had no idea what would work, why it would work, how it work would work. The first, the first show that we had at Coil, I, I told my whole team, I was like, you know, this idea we have for the second half, it's not going to work. It's, it'll be a miracle if this works. It will be a miracle. Wow. And, and, the, and, it ha- and the first time it happened was the first night of Coil. Um, and I was, I'm, I'm shocked that it actually worked. And it, and it works in ways that, uh, that I never expected. Like, I feel like I set up a series of parameters Mm -hmm. and like let it loose and had no idea what was going to happen. And then, and then it it worked, but for different reasons than I thought it would. What are the audience or what are some of your favorite audience reactions to the show? Um, Reggie Watts saw it in Melbourne and he came up to me and he said, that was disgusting. And I was, I was like, thanks, Reggie. That's amazing. Like, you know, it was, a, it was a deep compliment. You could tell. Yeah. You could tell. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, there's some things, there's some specifics that people, a lot of people say that I can't say here. Sure. But, um, I mean, the best reactions that I've gotten have been, uh, there's some people who just sit in the seats after the show is done and and usually by themselves and uh they just sit there for a while wow <laughs> um and sometimes sometimes people are crying i'm not i'm not totally sure why so i'm i cry a lot after during like during the last few minutes of the show and i'm not really sure why i think it's because we're because i uh when certain things happen in the show they happen to all of us and um the audience reaction i get i'm an audience for the audience and i'm just like 
I feel them and I feel them maybe be moved. It's palpable in the room. I could feel them. Maybe they're moved or maybe they're shocked or I'm not sure, but uh, we all sort of have this community experience together and I'm not, I, I'm not really sure what it is, but everyone seems to have a, it's, I feel like I get to hit the reset button on, on people in certain ways, or like they hit the reset button on me. After a show, there's a certain, um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than people. I, I think that people walk out differently than they walk in sometimes in the best case scenario, you know, in the worst case, people just think it's a, a crazy show. Right. <laughs> Did you have any sense when you were creating it, how successful it would be? No. I mean, both <laughs> successful as a production and also as a phenomenon. Right. No, no, not at all. Um, I was very, you know, I, I had an, I was like, I, I tend to, the, the stuff that I want to make is stuff that I've never seen before, which is why it's exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I've, if I have an idea to make something and I've seen it, I think, well, someone already did that. So I want to explore new I- ideas. New ideas are exciting to me or like new ways of looking at things or um, I'm not making it just because I think it's new, but I'm, that's, it's just what excites me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had no idea if, I, I mean, I, I really thought that people might not like it. Uh, I really didn't know. You know, you do these things, you do these like show these halfway showings for, you know, for, for, you know, we, we did the show, we did the show and described sort of the things that we couldn't do logistically for, um, for the PS people and for like the people who were giving us space and like, you know, for 10 people. And those are the worst because it's only 10 people. You're describing half of what the show is. And, uh, and the show's not fully formed. And so you just come out of those things thinking like, this is terrible. Like, all, like what am I doing? What, what am I actually doing? Um, <laughs> and, and P.S. Um, certain elements of the show, they were actively trying to get us not to do or to avoid because they were logistical nightmares. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, they tried to stop us from making the show that eventually we made, which is funny because they were the ones who commissioned it in the first place. Um, <laughs> no, I, I really thought that uh, people would just think it was gimmicky and, uh, and uh, not, not interesting. And so when you confronted that, uh, for lack of a better term, fear of failure, how did you push through it? Oh, time doesn't stop going forward (laughs) so just that that's the only way I got through it is um you know I (laughs) my dark night of the soul lasted like three months I think uh and I didn't really like have an apartment to stay in at some during a certain time so I was like sleeping in some of the rehearsal spaces which was which is never a good thing you know um please say more about what you were going through. (laughs) Oh, I just, I had a weird housing situation in New York. My, in 2009, my apartment building in Brooklyn collapsed to to the ground and like everything in it was destroyed. Where was this? In Fort Greene. Uh, no one was hurt. Amazingly. Uh, it was like a four story building. It just collapsed to the ground and yeah, everything was destroyed. So, So I was a little upset. And then I found a place in downtown Brooklyn and then they knocked that place down. Uh, to build luxury condos. And that was in, that was like two years ago. And so coming out of that, I was touring a lot, so I didn't really have a place. My stuff was just in storage. And there were several weeks at a time where I found myself just not, I didn't plan well enough and I just didn't have a place to stay. But I had a rehearsal space or a studio space, and so I would just sleep there, <laughs> which is really depressing when you're working by yourself on something that you think is not good. Um, but you had faith at some point. Is that what you had? I don't know if I had faith. I had the determination to... So 
So some of the ideas in the show, I think, um, they only work if you do them 100%. And I mean, if you do them 99.999%, they don't work. So you have to, you have to push, you have to just keep pushing and push and push and push and push. And that's what I tend to do is like, I have an idea and I, I don't know why I have it. And I, and I, but I know that I'm interested in it. And then I'll trust that it can be a thing if I just go far enough with it. Um, but it takes a lot of failing before that. You know, it takes 99 bad ideas, and then there's one finally at, at, at the end of the tunnel. But I just have to keep going and pushing and pushing on on, on what I think might never work. Um, because I think that there's one, there's like a, just this tiny, this tiny chance that it's going to work. And if it does, I, I think it'll be amazing. So I think that's what this show was, is that, there was just the smallest possibility that this idea that I had for something could be a thing. Mm -hmm. And so I just pushed on it because there, because, uh, I was past the point of no return. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like a, a trust that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It was just, that's, uh, there was nothing else to do. You know, I was, like I had to, <laughs> I just had to go. I just had to keep pushing on it because there's there was literally nothing else I could do. Were you surprised when it worked? Yeah. Um uh, to like still to this day uh during I mean I say that you know I do I do trust that if something breaks during the show other people are there to fix it, but there's one thing that if it breaks during the show it doesn't work. The show doesn't work. So I really fear every time when we get to that part of the show, I'm like, <laughs> either it's going to be a good show or I'm going to, um, I'm going to have a hard night ahead of me. Has that part of the show ever broken? It's, um, it, it no, uh, not in the, not in the worst way that it can. It's the, there's, there've been some timing issues. Mm -hmm. Um, there've been some timing issues. What, what happened? Something happened one night where I got really very upset. Oh, no, it was just the microphones were breaking. No, that part of the show, what you're talking about, what I know that you're talking about, um, has never broken fully. Oh, good. Yeah. There's been some close calls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there have been some really close calls. Um, the behind, and um, when we shoot the show, um, we shoot backstage sometimes. And uh, uh, there's, some, there's some really fun, just because they're, the mechanics of how everything works is really fun to watch. Um, and it, uh, because someone, I, I accidentally left the camera backstage once and, uh, and watched the backstage action happen. And I was like, this is amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, I don't know why I was saying that, but, Oh, uh, just to say that, uh, uh, Sometimes there's some very close calls, uh -huh. <laughs> which no one would ever know because if it's a close call and it works, uh, it doesn't just, matter if it's close. It doesn't matter if it's close. Yeah. Yeah. We've never, it's never failed yet. Have there been any differences culturally, how people responded to it? Cause you've performed it now in Europe, Australia, the United States, any variations in how people receive it? Mm. So New York was great. Melbourne was sort of out of control. I heard. Like it was, they really loved it, um, and I'm not sure. I'm not sh totally sure why. Um, France, I was really worried that the it was something that would get lost in translation, and the translation thing was 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 a bigger issue than I thought, uh, or or it just opened up more things. Um, but it, eventually, it not eventually. I was just I was pleasantly surprised that it didn't. It didn't make as much of a difference as I thought it would. Um, people very early on in the show realized that they're not meant to get everything. And so they, I think they let themselves off the hook and they can just watch instead of, instead of read. Yeah. Um, which is good. So, fr and France is amazing. Slovenia, Ljubljana, they were kind of not into it. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, they were not, you know, it's like, and when I say not into it, like we've been very fortunate in that, like the, the response to the show has just been like really good sort of across the board. Yes. And so it wasn't like people walked out in Slovenia, but, um, that would be really hard to do. Well, just logistically. Yes. Yeah. I don't, 
You couldn't really. <laughs> also, it's not that long. So like sit your ass down and close your right? eyes it's and not, take a nap. It's, it's not that long. So I've never seen. We did have our first person fall asleep ever. Oh, my God. And which I was like, you have to be so tired. I know that you're not bored. You Let's can't be bored. it was like some kind of drug-induced situation. Yeah. I, w- I hope so. And Although I, was, I cannot imagine taking drugs <laughs> and then coming to the show. Oh, my God. That would be. Oh, I would, that would if be anyone, crazy. If anyone wants to try that, I don't encourage it, but let, let us know what happens. Yeah, I'd be curious to know as well. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been yeah. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Max Mood Theater and Performance Podcast. You can find us all on Twitter. Andrew is at HelloAndrewJS, H-E-L-L-O-A-N-D-R-E-W-J-S. Maximu is at Maximu, M-A-X-A-M-O-O. And I'm at Lindsay Barons, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. We'll see you next week.